Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fellow music nerds, welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, folks, and welcome to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. My name is Steve Dawson. I'm coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I have the extreme pleasure of bringing you my conversation with a musician who has been involved in so many legendary recordings, I wouldn't even know where to start. His name is Charlie McCoy. It's impossible to think of any country or rock and roll music from the 50s and 60s without bringing up the A-team of the Nashville recording scene of that time. These guys played on so many recording sessions, I'm sure they don't even know half of them. But luckily for us, Charlie McCoy is here today, and he has a memory like a steel trap, and he was right there in the middle of it all. From one of his first sessions, Candyman, made with Roy Orbison, through to the countless sessions with Bob Dylan on all of his Nashville records, all of them classics like Blonde on Blonde and Nashville Skyline, to sessions with Elvis Presley, Simon and Garfunkel, Loretta Lynn, Ringo Starr, George Jones, Patti Page, Willie Nelson. Charlie has been through all of it. He's one of the great harmonica players of all time, and his abilities on that instrument really brought the harmonica into the pop music idiom when he sprung onto the scene. He's also a wonderful guitar player. That's him playing all the lead guitar on Bob Dylan's Desolation Row. Uh, he also plays bass and vibes and probably lots of other things that I don't even know about. Anyway, all along Music Row at, at that time in the 50s and 60s, the studios were buzzing and the A-team would be going from session to session, laying down performances that have all become classics. No overdubs to be found. All of it went down live with nothing fixed, changed, auto-tuned, or throttled and killed in any way. And no headphones either. These guys would just sit close to, to each other, listen, and play. It was a simple formula. 
but without the caliber of players they had, it just wouldn't work. Luckily, Nashville had a glut of great musicians, and the main guys on the scene at that time were such legendary names as Pig Robbins, Bob Moore, Kenny Buttry, Floyd Kramer, Vassar Clements, Buddy Spiker, Lloyd Green, Pete Drake, Boots Randolph, and today's guest, Charlie McCoy. Charlie is still on the scene, working in studios, making his own records, and doing sessions. He's as keen as ever and hungry to play music. I was lucky enough to connect with him from his place in Florida, although he still lives in Nashville most of the time. It was a real honor to speak with someone who is so involved in all these important recordings, and I hope you'll enjoy the episode. Um, you can check out what Charlie is up to at his website, which is uh, charliemccoy.com. So go there, check out his Nutbar discography, and uh, see what he's up to. And again, thank you to everybody out there for listening and tuning in. I appreciate it. There's a lot of stuff out there you could listen to, but here you are, and I thank you for it. You can connect with me in the show at my website, stevedawson.ca. Uh, you can make comments there, and if you feel inclined to contribute with a donation, we are accepting those as well on any of the uh, episode pages. There's a donate button. Go ahead and hit that and make a donation, and we would greatly appreciate it. You can also go over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast there for free, and that helps us as well get the word out there. And share that with your friends and spread the word. We would greatly appreciate it. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sone Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now, without further delay, here is my conversation with Charlie McCoy. Hey, Steve. How are you, man? I'm well. Good. Let's dive in, and you're kind of like the ideal guest for this show, because um, I'm really keen to point out the different scenes in, in the history of American music, and you're just such a kingpin of this whole uh, Nashville scene that ha that grew up in the in the 50s and 60s, and and became what it what it is now. Although I got to say, my preference is more for your uh, era of, of stuff than what's going on now. Um, oh well, you know, hey, I can preface that by saying, you know, the musicians that are there today, like the studio guys, they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. Definitely, what they're being asked to play sometimes is not so brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do. These guys are great. They're, they're amazing players. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, you, you go, when you're a studio musician, you go do work that you're asked to do. That's yeah, what we do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's your, what's your session career like these days? Do you, do you kind of shy away from stuff or, or? No, 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 I, I don't turn anything down. I did, <laughs> I think I did 49 last year. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I'm still. You know, I feel good. I, I'm still excited about music. Yeah, I can and, tell. Uh, I love to. I love to play. You know, I just love to play. And so, in May, I celebrated 55 years of studio work. Wow, that's that's epic. In the heyday, now you mentioned that you did 45 sessions last year. In the in the heyday of what you were up to in the like you know early mid to late 60s, how many sessions a year were you doing at that point? Probably uh, 
late sixties through the seventies, probably three hundred. We were we were busy, that's for sure. Yeah. Now your credits are like staggering, and I'm not going to dwell on that because people can look that stuff up really easily. It's not hard to find if you look up Charlie McCoy and go to the Discogs or go to um, All Music. You can see the epic list of of credits. Um, what I'm curious about, obviously, we're going to talk a lot about the harmonica, but um, you're also, I mean, you play all kinds of instruments. Um, did you always consider yourself a, a harmonica player primarily, or is that just kind of what you got most known for? No, uh, that was my first instrument I started when I was eight years old. I got a guitar that same year. Mm-hmm. I must say, until I was a teenager, the guitar was was more of what I was interested in, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, when we were kids in the summer, we, all we were worried about is how to throw a baseball, you know. <laughs> we, we weren't worried much about music. But anyway, uh, so I was heavy in the guitar. I, I became a huge fan of Chuck Berry. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I learned to play and sing Chuck Berry songs. Uh-huh. And uh, But then one day, going around on the radio, I happened to hear a song by Jimmy Reed. Sure. And when I heard that harmonica, I thought, oh my gosh. That piercing Jimmy Reed harp. I've got one of those. I got to learn how to do that. And then, <laughs> it, you know, then my interest really, really uh, exploded on harmonica. So you mentioned hearing Jimmy Reed, and I, I know that you've mentioned Little Walter in some interviews that I've read as well. Um, well, Little Walter to me is the greatest blues player ever lived. Yeah, he's I don't, great, I don't eh? think anybody's any better, you know. I, I listened to his, I've got a CDs, the best of Little Walter and the best of Muddy Waters, which is Little Walter playing on it, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I listen, I listen to it at least, at least once a year. I just put those on and just be quiet and listen. And I swear, I hear something different every time. There's something about going back and revisiting albums that you really love and that you know well, and then hearing them maybe after a year of life and experience or whatever it is but you just suddenly yeah. like a whole new layer of it unfolds i find that with so many records it's really cool i was living in uh when i was eight i moved to south florida yeah uh yeah. i was a sickly kind of a kid and my mom and dad split when i was two and my dad had moved to florida and they all decided that the best thing were for me to get out of the hard west virginia winters so I lived with my dad at school year and with my mom in the summer. Okay. Okay. And uh, I, which was a great thing for me because the school system was better in Florida, and I made musical connections. Okay. Which I probably wouldn't have made in West Virginia. In what way? Like, like your friends at school were playing? Well, I, I joined. We we started a rock and roll band. Some guys at school, and then one of the guys uh, knew a some people that played at a country dance. Mm-hmm. And one day, one time he, he, uh, he conned me into going over there with him. And the next <laughs> thing I know, the MC is up there calling my name saying, Oh, we got a special guest in the house. We're going to get him up here to do a song, you know? And this was like, this was like, a, <laughs> it was like an ambush, you know? Really? But once yeah. I got up there and I, I asked the guy if I could borrow a guitar, I said, you guys know, I didn't think they, I thought they were just playing country. I said, you guys know Johnny be good? And the guy said, yeah, what key? And when we played it, the audience loved it. The band was so nice, and these guys were so good. And I thought, hey, there's a lot more to this country music than I know about. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and through that connection, I met uh, Mel Tillis, 
Right. So, so how did that happen? The show that you're talking about, that's the Old South Jamboree, right? Right, the Old South. And Mel came in one night after uh, they had a concert. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the, uh, you know, our dance ran till midnight. And a lot of the uh, country shows, when they'd come into town, if, if they got out, you know, 1030 or something, we were very close location to the auditorium. And the people from the country shows would come over and visit. Okay. So I'm and, really uh, I'm really interested in these shows that you're talking about, like the Old South Jamboree. I, I talked to Norman Blake uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and he also had a radio show, not not in Florida, obviously, but um, all around the, the South and stuff, there were these these radio shows. So can you tell me about the Old South Jamboree? Like, was it a weekly show or a daily show, or how, was, how well, did that it, work? It, it was not a radio show. It was a live dance. Oh, okay. So there was no broadcast like, uh, of it. Like a barn dance, you know. Okay. But... My job was to get up 10 minutes each hour and play rock and roll for the younger people. Oh, okay. So you were, you were bringing in the youngsters. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm playing Chuck Berry, you know, and Carl Perkins and whatever. Okay. So Tillis came in, and he heard me sing a Chuck Berry song. Yeah. And I don't know, he might have had a few beers. <laughs> he came up to me afterwards, and he said, Boy, if you go to Nashville, I can get you on record tomorrow. Really? Well, that's like showing a steak to a wolf, you know? Yeah, man. And uh, so the day after high school, I went to Nashville. Uh-huh. And, and as luck would have it, Tillis was out of town. He had given me the name of his manager who, and now you're in Nashville now. When you when you dig around in history, you're going to see the name Jim Denny okay. come up. He's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. He used to manage the Opry. Anyway, he's a publisher. He, he's big music publisher. He's the one who discovered Mel and, mm -hmm. and, uh, a lot of writers anyway. So he, so, uh, I called the number and they said, well, Mel's out of town. <laughs> and I said, well, I, gosh, I, I just met him in Florida. And, and she said, well, wait a minute, let me let you talk to Mr. Denny and talk to him. And I said, and finally he said, are you the guy that, that, uh, Mel would tell me was playing Chuck Berry? And I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, <laughs> he said, uh, yeah, Mel told me about you. He said, come on down to my office. I, uh, let me talk to you a minute. <laughs> so I went down and he set up auditions. He'd never heard me. Really? And on, yeah. on Mel's word, he set up auditions with Chet and Owen Bradley. So that's <laughs> how you met those guys. That's and cool. I went in there and singing and playing Johnny Be Good, you know? And, yeah. And they both, I wish I'd had a video because when I look back at it, it's hilarious. What year would They're that have been? 60. 1960, okay. No, I'm sorry, 59. 59. 59. Okay. I'm just graduated from high school. Yeah. And uh, they both said, well, son, we think you're pretty good, but, you know, we just don't do this kind of music here. Right, right. And uh, so, you know, um, when you're 18, you know everything, and you're thinking, oh, what do these country bumpkins know? <laughs> but then, then, the real kicker, Owen says, by the way, I'm having a session this afternoon. Would you like to come watch? Oh, cool. So I went to the session and watched Brenda Lee cut her first hit record. No kidding. Yes, and and when I watched those musicians work, I said right that moment, I said, to heck with singing, I want to do this. That's crazy. Do you remember, uh, like, what's, was it at RCA or what studio was nope. that at? Nope, at the Bradley Quonset Hut. Oh, at the Quonset Hut, okay. And yeah. 
And do you remember like who any of the musicians were on that session? Remember every one of them. Okay, who was it? Buddy Harmon. Yeah. Bob Moore. Oh man. Floyd Kramer. Nice. Ray Edenton. Uh huh. Harold Bradley. Yeah. Grady Martin. Wow. Boots Randolph. <laughs> Anita Kerr singers. These are the guys who never get enough credit for what they started there. Well, that's what we're here to fix. Yes. Uh, <laughs> these guys should all be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, absolutely. As a group, they should. And actually, some years ago, Harold tried to lobby for that, but the powers of be wouldn't have it. Their concession was, okay, you get to elect one every three years. You know, that was the concession. But these guys were doing three and four sessions a day. They're doing three and four songs a three-hour session. You know, it it was mono and two-track. There's no overdubs. There's no fixes. You know, what you hear is what you... That's the record. And think of the amazing records they did. Do you remember the Brenda Lee tracks that you would have seen go down? Yeah, it was called Sweet Nothings. Okay, okay. She was 13 years old. And Owen was producing? Yes. And uh, and was it pretty much like that, like one or two takes and it was done? Brenda Lee was singing live in the room, of course, right with the crew. Um, yep, that was it. I mean, that's the way they all did it then because we didn't have multi-track, you know? Yeah, yeah. We didn't have the have the capabilities. The only way you could have done that would have been to cut the track and go from one mono machine to another. Right. Adding the vocal, you know. Yeah. But nobody did that. Hey, all these people could sing. You yeah, know? man. No need. No need. What the hell do you need <laughs> to do that concept. for? What a concept. Yeah. 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 Um, so you go and you watch the session. It totally blows your mind, but you didn't Absolutely. stay in Nashville, right? Did you go back to Miami? No, no. I, that... I had to go back home. I mean, right. I was, you know, I was living with my dad. I would... I was already enrolled in the University of Miami. So I went back and went you, to school. Were you thinking that, man, I just got to get back to Nashville? That's what I need yes. to do? Okay. Yes. But I went to school. I lasted almost a year, and then I couldn't, I had to leave. <laughs> that was that. <laughs> My dad, I broke his heart, you know. He really? Blue-collar worker. His dream was for his son to go to college. Right, you know, and right. So, uh, and I, I break out to go play music, you know. yeah. Uh, it was, it, it, he wasn't very happy, but anyway, I came up and, uh, you'll love this. My first job was as a drummer. I heard that they, these friends of mine said, Hey, there's a guitar job in Nashville. If you'll come up here. And I, that's what, that was the kicker that got me to go. You know, mm-hmm. when I showed up, the guy said, well, you guys never call me back. I already hired a guitar player, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and I, and of course, you know that's a that's a moment that can you know the way you feel when you hear that. Yeah. It's like, but anyway, so but this guy was so so nice, and he said, looked at me, and he said, "Well, what else can you play? <laughs> what do you want me to play?" <laughs> I said, "I play harmonica." Yeah. He said, "No, I don't need that. Uh, can you play drums?" Uh-huh. And at that moment, I thought, "Say yes and figure it out." Good for you. And I knew a little bit about it, you know. Had you actually played a kit I said, yes, but I don't have any. (laughs) Okay. He said, we'll get you some. Yeah, sure. And my first job was at the Hotel Edison on Yonge Street in Toronto. Really? Ah, Yep. Nice. We played there for two weeks. Yeah. And at the end of the two weeks, the 
club owner called the booking agent back and said, don't ever call me again. This is the worst act I've ever had. Really? Yeah. <laughs> was it a rock and roll act or country? Yeah. Well, no, no, it was kind of country. And this singer was a an old Georgia boy. He had a lot of real Southern humor and okay. he talked very slow and that just didn't, didn't, didn't uh, Would that have didn't, been the same circuit yeah, yeah. that like Ronnie Hawkins was on? No. In fact, one week there was a club next door called Le Cop Door. Yeah, sure. And Legend, a, legendary. The one week we played, Ronnie Hawkins was next door. Mm-hmm. The next week we played, Narvel Feltz was next door. Wow. Yeah, Toronto was right in that right in the circuit, eh? Like everyone went up there and it was so you'd you'd be there for a week or two and just play the same place night after night. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So that was, that was my first job. <laughs> and uh did it last long? Like were you touring? No, we had or? we came back to Nashville. We had one more show and then That was that. He called us and said, "Well, my records will flop. Uh I don't have any more gigs, so That's that. So here I'm here I am. I just <laughs> I'm, I don't have a job, and all I have is a set of drums, <laughs> you know, because I bought the drums. You did, eh? He okay. co-signed for me. Yeah. He okay. co-signed for me so I could buy the drums, and so I owned I owned a set of drums. Uh-huh. And uh, I was living with a songwriter. Yeah. His name is Kent Westbury. He's in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. He wrote a few big hit records. He wrote a song for Gene Watson called Love on a Hot Afternoon. It was a giant hit. Mm-hmm. He wrote a song. The song he wrote that got me my first session was also recorded by Les Paul, Mary Ford, oh. and the Beatles. And the Beatles. What song is that? The song is called "I Just Don't Understand." Wow, getting a song done by the Beatles—that like what a claim yeah. to fame, eh? Right. So, so I'm there. This was uh, about May of '60. Yeah. And the gig's over. I'm there. Had some. Lean times there for a while. I bet. I asked my, I wrote my mom for money. I wouldn't ask my dad, you know. Okay. <laughs> you know how that is. Yeah. And then yeah. later that summer, a friend of mine, a guitar player I knew from Florida, called me up and he said, hey, I'm putting together a band for Stonewall Jackson and Red Sylvine to go play fairs out in the Midwest. Uh-huh. Can you play drums? Perfect. I said, not only can I play them, I got them. Yeah, man, you were ready. That, what a perfect so- call. <laughs> Here I go again. Yeah. And uh, so around this time, like 1960, 61, where were you at with your harmonica playing? Like, had you done a lot of gigs or anything at that point? Well, yeah. Point? No, I hadn't done any gigs up there. But what was happening is, is my buddy Kent, these guys, these guys would write all the time. Uh-huh. Guys would come over and they'd write, you know. And uh, so I would hang around with them and, you know, while they were writing. And, and every once in a while he'd say, hey, man, why don't you get your harmonica and see if it fits what we're writing here. Mm-hmm. So I, so he wrote this one song and he said, uh, can you do something with this? And so I, I got out and I played something. And, and later uh, I get a call from Mr. Denny and he said, uh, hey, uh, Chet Atkins just called. He's recording an unknown singer from Sweden named Ann Margaret. <laughs> and he's doing that song that you played on and he wants you to come and play exactly what you played on the demo. No kidding. Oh, that's yes. killer. Uh, so and, and that was... That was 61, just, May of 61. That was I Just Don't Remember, right? I Just Don't Understand's called. 
I checked out that tune. I don't know how that slipped through my radar, but I, I didn't, I mean, I, I knew of, of Anne Margaret, but I didn't really know of her career that much. But, um, uh, and that song was a, that was a, that was a bit of a hit, right? Well, and you know, their, their whole plan was, I don't think they ever meant for Anne Margaret to be a recording artist. They wanted her to be an actress. Right. This was kind of a, a tool, you know, to get, to get her going and get her exposed. Okay. Part of the machine yep. that they had, and and also yeah. around that time, you were recording as a solo artist too. Uh, I know you've got that tune, Cherry Berry Wine, that was I think sixty one. Yeah. So well, that happened too because me, I, I helped Kent write that song, and uh, and he said, "Hey, we're going to make a demo." He said, "Why don't you sing this song? It's not my style at all." <laughs> I said, "Okay, I'll sing it," and then. Archie Blyer from Cadence Records heard the demo and he said, "I want to, I want, I want to record that guy." Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. And so the version that's out there, the release version of Cherry Berry Wine, is that the demo, or did you retrack it? No, no, that's that's a master recording. Uh, we recorded that at the Quonset Hut. Oh, okay. And and who who would have produced that session? Archie Blyer. Okay. He's the owner of Cadence Records. Well, and do you remember that session? Like, was it nerve wracking going in there as the as the artist for the first absolutely. time? Absolutely. Yeah. Because here's all those here's all those uh, great musicians, you know, that I'd watched before, you know. And, yeah. And yeah. Uh, these guys were. I mean, they're they're so good. It was Floyd and you know Bob. It was Moore a, and, Oh my God. Okay. And uh, uh, Harold Bradley. You know, it's the same old guys and. And they show their versatility on that because that song's nothing like what they were doing daily, you know. Yeah, it sort yeah. of straddles the line between country and yeah, rock and yeah. roll. I, I mean, I don't know what they called it back then. W- was it a country single? Is that what it was? Or no, no, it wasn't a country. It was pop single. Okay, pop all okay. the way. Yeah, but yeah. you know, uh, Nashville, Nashville in those days uh, cut an awful lot of crossover records. You yeah, know? man. Yeah, when man. you think about Everly's, Brenda, mm-hmm. yeah. Roy Orbison. Yeah. You know, Nashville was doing that yeah. back then. Right. But the but the the tie to the uh Anne Margaret, this is this is uh you know, when I tell people about my career, I said it's it's like a dream, you know. It, this is like a fairy tale. I do this song with Anne Margaret. Oh, and Denny went with me over there and and he, he said, you know, because it had been two years since I'd auditioned for Chet. Mm-hmm. So we go in and Denny walked to Chet and he said, Chet, here's the boy I told you that played on that demo. And Chet looked around and he said, I know you. <laughs> You're that Chuck Berry guy. I said, yeah. I, I said, I auditioned for you a couple of years ago. He said, yeah, uh, a black Les Paul custom, right? <laughs> he remembers the guitar. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I said, yeah. He said, man, I wish you'd have played that harmonica for me. We could have done something. Yeah, no kidding. So at this point, people don't really know you as a harmonica player. They're just like, they don't really cool. hardly know me at all, you know. Yeah. But yeah. so, uh, so out the 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 miracle that happens is that at the end of the Ann Margaret session, mm-hmm. Bob Moore walks over to me. Yeah, and he said, "You busy Friday?" Really? Hey, I was free the rest of my life, you know. <laughs> and I said, "No, I'm not busy." He said, "Well, come back to the studio." I'm recording Roy Orbison. Whoa! So that was through was Bob a, Moore that you got that? Yeah. Oh I was God. a huge Roy Orbison fan. I'm going to come to that um, 
Roy Orbison song in just a sec. I'm I'm just curious about that Anne Margaret's single, like the the fuzz guitar sound on that song is totally outrageous. Do you remember who was playing that guitar part on that song? Hank Garland. That was Hank Garland. Okay. Uh, and and like yep. the fuzz thing, I guess you know, like everyone sort of credits that to that um, uh, Marty Robbins track. Was that was that something that was kind of in vogue at that time? Was like making it as fuzzy as possible. Well, it was something brand new, you know. I mean, yeah. actually, that uh, you know that whole thing was. It, I don't know if you've heard the story, but the whole thing was on the Marty Robbins session was kind of discovered by accident. Yeah, they they there just had, some, they had a broken channel in the board, I think, right? Right, right. <laughs> and then one of the engineers there figured out, and he made the little maestro pedal. Then he he licensed that maestro pedal with Gibson. Yeah, and I think he made a fortune. You know? Yeah, man, no kidding. And yeah. and it sounds to me also like the Jordanaires maybe are on that that Anne Margaret track. Was that was that the Jordanaires? No, it was the Anita Kerr singers. Oh, okay. And would would all that have been going on live, like with the yep. backup singers and everything? Yep. Crazy. Every, every session was live, all completely live. So you've got like I've even ten... I've even been in there with with uh, a whole string section live, you know? Yeah, yeah. And 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 Margaret, like she wasn't exactly a, a seasoned veteran in the studio. Was she? She was singing live as well. Yep. Wow, that's pretty impressive. It was. She was eighteen. Holy cow! Yeah. Can you kind of set the stage for me? Like, obviously, you know, everyone's heard about these sessions going on in Nashville in that era, but I'm I'm interested to know, like, what a session for Chet Atkins or Owen Bradley would have actually looked like um, physically. Like, are you all, you're all set up in, in one room, obviously. Um, you know, for the most part, I guess at that point you're playing harmonica because there was no shortage of guitar players already. But yeah. were, were amps right. in the room right, with right. you and and um, yes, you know, amps? They had amps that just stayed there. Okay. And uh, the drum set stayed okay. there. Mm-hmm. There was a drum at RCA, and there was one at the Quonset Hut. Yeah. And uh, Buddy Harmon had come in. He was left-handed, you know, so he'd kind of just move the things. Yeah. But if someone else came there, they'd move them back to a, make it a right-handed set. Right. And then they would come out and, you know, move a mic. Yeah. Change the position of mic, like if they had one over the hi-hat, you know. Yeah. So the basic back line was just there, and you would just go from studio to studio. It was there. And yeah. that was one reason. That was one of the main reasons those guys could do four songs a session, because you didn't have all of this gear sound checking stuff you know right because right. everything was already right. there it was already plugged in yeah and it worked you know right so chet and owen were were both great players obviously which probably or definitely like helped this situation um were they like were they actively producing the artists as well like do you remember were they like really coaching the singers and helping them somebody like ann margaret or whoever you were doing a session for or were they kind of like just setting the stage and sitting back and letting it all happen. They, uh, well, Owen was more of a hands-on producer. Mm-hmm. Chet was kind of set back. Yeah. You, Chet was, you know, you, after, if you worked for him a while, you learned to read him, you know. Oh, yeah. If he didn't like something, he'd say to you, maybe you might want to try something different. <laughs> okay. Then you knew he didn't like it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, Owen was very, very hands-on. But you know what? They, these guys... They hired singers who could sing, yep. and didn't hardly mess with them. They right, just, you know, 
And and what about for you as a harmonica player? Would 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 they give you direction or anything, or were were they just they bring you in and trust you to do whatever you did? Yeah, because uh, and it was a new thing. You know, I was experimenting too because I come from rock and roll. You yeah. know, country music was kind of a new thing to me. But uh, I tell you what, the most the the greatest piece of advice I heard about a year later. Now I'm working a lot. Yeah, you know I'm. 22 years old. I'm working with the A team. I'm, and I'm one day, I guess I'm just sitting over there going crazy. And Grady Martin took me outside. <laughs> you got what it takes to stay here a long, long time. But I'm telling you right now, you're playing too much. Really? And what a wake up call. He said, if you can't hear every word and understand it, you're playing too much. And I thought about that a lot. And I went in and listened to him and yeah. I think, Oh, that's it. You know? And from that moment on, Less is more was my motto. That is a and another thing too. Harmonica, what you know? Of course, there we record with a lot of girl singers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Harmonica is right in the register. Right. It's right there with them, and it's and it's a, one of those instruments that catches your ear. So it can really be a distraction if it's overdone. Right. Yeah, you got to be really aware of where the phrasing is and where the singing is. Yep, and that that, that was best thing that ever anybody ever said to me yeah so like how do you navigate that if you're only basically doing one take of a song or or was it the case mostly where you'd have maybe two chances to to hear the song before you tracked it you know it was all different kinds of ways that it was done most of the time they would play a demo and and back then people put their demos on acetates yeah there was a there was a record player in one end of the studio, mm-hmm. and they'd bring these demos in on acetates, and that's the way we would hear them. And there were no charts. Right. Everybody learning it by by ear, you know. And that's why I say these guys are so incredible because they were learning three and four songs yeah. every session, yeah. you know, with no no charts, no music, and doing takes and making records, you know. That it was it was you know and, and what an education. I couldn't have bought an education like that at any school in the world. Yeah, man. So was the Nashville number chart system not happening then? Is this predating that? Not yet. Wow. No. Let me tell you that my it's the definition of a studio musician. We we do precision guesswork based (laughs) on unreliable data provided by those of questionable knowledge. I'm just amazed though that there was no there was no notation of any sort like people people just had to have the memory to be able to pull it off or else they got left yeah. behind. Hey, and these guys had worked together so much. Yeah. They they almost, you know, you could, they were almost always on the same page. They were all thinking alike, you know. Right. I mean, it was a well-oiled machine, I can tell you that. Yeah. So I'm a I, I'm a guitar and steel player, and I'm always curious to hear about the the steel players back in the day. I know you played with all of them, but you know, like people like Curly Chalker and and Buddy Emmons. Were there were there guys that stood out to you as some of your favorite musicians? Not necessarily on steel, but like in that crew, guys that you really like to play with. Well, I love the steel players, and if you ever see any discographies i have used a ton of them on my own records yeah man different different ones yeah uh but you know i know buddy emmons is a legend but he you know he really didn't do that much session work right nor did right. curly 
the, the, the four guys that carried Nashville through that hot and heavy 60s and 70s, Lloyd Green, yeah. Hal Rugg, Weldon Myrick, right. Pete Drake. Yeah, and they were just, they were the Those guys. Those are the guys that carried that ball yeah. on, the, on most of the hits. Yeah, it's a small crew, but man, so impressive. Oh, those guys are so good. You know, it's just amazing. And um, I mean, Lloyd's still playing. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Hal and Weldon are no longer with us, nor yeah. Pete. But Lloyd's still playing. He's, he'll, he'll be on my next album. Oh, cool. We, you know, we've already recorded it. Yeah. He played, and it's just playing great. Amazing. So you mentioned um, uh, Bob Moore bringing you in for the Roy Orbison uh, session. Can you tell me a little bit about that session, like where it was and, and who was producing and what you remember about working with Roy? It was RCAB, and the producer was Fred Foster, okay, who's the owner of Monument Records. Yeah. And, uh, but when you work with Roy, Roy was kind of in charge. Oh, really? His songs were so unusual that, uh, you know, you just had to really follow him because, you know, uh, Harold Bradley tells a great story. The first time Roy recorded in Nashville, he recorded only the lonely. Uh huh. And you know the song has some two beat measures in it. Yeah, it's not a simple song. And so Harold said, "We we wasted thirty minutes trying to talk Roy out of the two beat measure." <laughs> he said, "Roy, it's out of meter." And Roy said, "Hey, I don't know anything about meter, but this is the way I do it." Yeah. Well, you yeah. could just add two beats to this. He said, that's not the way I do it. So finally they said, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and look at a giant record he made. And then from that day on, you know, whatever Roy said, everybody, you know, because, hey, this guy knows he, he knows what he's doing. a great yeah. artist, you know. Yeah. And yeah. a great writer. Yeah. What a great yeah. songwriter. Oh, my God. Yeah. His songs are epic. The productions are amazing. So the, the song yeah. that you did was Candyman, right? Yes, um, and, uh, what do you remember about recording it? Well, the, uh, it, Scotty Moore was on that session. Oh my God, really? And, uh, Boots Randolph. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, of course, Floyd Kramer and Buddy Harmon. Yeah. And Bob and, uh, Harold Bradley and Roy that sung the song for us. Of course, now this is, you know, blues harmonica. This is right up my alley. Yeah, man. It's pretty rock and tune. Uh, there was, he couldn't come up with an intro. He said, Hey, somebody come up with an intro. <laughs> well, I got this idea right away, but I'm thought I'm thinking, Hey man, I'm, I'm this, I better keep my mouth shut. I'm the new kid here. <laughs> and, uh, finally they kept saying, come on, come on. We got to have an intro. And I, so Harold's the one guy I knew because he'd been the leader on those demo sessions I played on for Jim Denny. Okay. And I walked over to Harold and kind of whispered. I said, <laughs> Hey, uh, listen. What what do you think of this idea? And I I said if I played this, and then all you guys join me on this part. He's and he, he says, Hey, hey, everybody, Charlie's got the intro. <laughs> oh, whoa. so that's what they did. They did they did the intro and and uh, uh, then I got a solo in it. And you know, so yeah, that, it's it's pretty featured. Like it's not just a little background thing. It's a big part of that song. Well, that that record came out it hit the airwaves it became a huge hit and it started my phone ringing yeah tell me about that like so as a session player like playing on a huge hit record like that especially where you're featured and harmonica must have suddenly become 
like a, th- a thing around town that people wanted. Uh, how did that change your life? Oh, it was amazing because this is what I came here to do. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And now all of a sudden it's happening. And it only took two years, you know. Amazing. I mean... It, actually, it only took one year since I moved to town. Yeah. It's incredible. Like I said, it's like a dream. So right away, people are calling, and obviously you're in with Owen Bradley, you're in with Chet Atkins, which is, that's pretty much like, I guess at the time, if you're in with those two, you were, you that was it, right? Like, the, they were the guys. Well, there were, you know, there was also Columbia Records, Capitol Records, MGM, and Mercury were also recording a lot then, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just RCA and and... Decca mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, there were a lot, a lot of stuff going yeah. on, but and also you would also get, you know, when a new guy comes and he makes a good impression, you get references from the musicians too. Right, right. You know, hey man, I played, right. I played with this kid today. You know, you want to hear this guy? You know that kind of thing. Did those guys know that you played other instruments too? Well, they begin to figure it out. You know, they begin to learn when uh, on this. I said. Well, I said, I can play acoustic. I can play an extra acoustic. Oh, okay, great. Do that. Right, yeah. And then uh, another good thing that happened to me, I had a session with Chet, and, and uh, Chet said, hey, I don't hear any harmonic on this song. Go out there and play a couple notes on the vibes. <laughs> I said, Chet, I don't play vibes. He said, oh, go on. You can do it. <laughs> you do now. <laughs> so I went out and hit a couple, and I, and, and I thought, hey, this is fun. Yeah. I'm going to learn to do this. So then I made it a point to learn it. Right. Tell me about the like the session, like the way that sessions worked back then. Like I know I know there was pretty strict time restraints on you and sessions were probably three hours. Was that like a really strict exact thing? Like like you worked from eleven to two or something and then you walked out the door right at two? Is that how it worked? It wasn't that strict, but for the most part, yes, you walked out mm-hmm. because they got the work done. Right. These guys were so efficient, you know. Uh did did it ever happen and, where you were where you just like the band wasn't getting the song right and you just stayed longer? I mean, I know that happened later, but like in that era, or was we've it done just, that? Yeah, we've done that. You know, when yeah. when it, especially when we feel like it's our fault, <laughs> <laughs> right? No, 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 we we'll, we would stay. You know, Nashville's a it was a, a everyone would bend a lot there, uh-huh. uh, but they were so good that. There was not much need to, you know. You're you're doing four songs you've never heard before. Yeah, and uh, you got basically you have forty five minutes per song. Per song, yeah. To learn it, get an arrangement, 
record it, listen back, record it again, or maybe three times. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, and would you... And hey, by the way, there were no headphones. Right. Yeah, you're all playing in the room together, no headphones. If you're, if you're, if you're hearing yourself too loud, then you're just too damn loud, right? That's right. And it wasn't, it's the studios didn't even have headphones. Right. That's awesome. I love that. I love that philosophy of recording, actually. But, you know, to record that way, you've got to, there, it, you've got to play soft. Yeah. You've got to play soft. Which because. brings out a great element, like a great tone in an in instrument, like especially like drums, you know, like you can't be pounding the drums, but that must have made people really develop a sound, a way of playing softly that really brings out yes. the, the tone. Because you can totally rock on the drums without playing loud, right? Of course. That's the big secret yeah. of drums. Yeah, and that was the biggest change that happened when the drummers started beating them like the, the end of their life, you know. And <laughs> so then all of a sudden, oh, well, the drums have got to be isolated. Then you, they started building booths, and yeah. then the, the need for headphones came about, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and even so, in in those days, like Brenda Lee and singers like that, they would just be in the room, no headphones, nothing. Right, okay. right. No headphones, nothing. So what would happen if you did a take and everyone was like, okay, that's it, but you kind of didn't dig what you did? Like if you did a solo that you could have done better, would you say, hey, I could do that better or, or just leave it? Well, depends who said, hey, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> if it was one of the guys, you know, like one of the guys is. Hey, you reckon? I, I, you just say, you suppose they might just try it one more time. Uh huh. Like there's ways. And then to... the other thing too is that you know if you're on a session like that and one guy just totally messes up. Yeah. Everybody does it again. Right. And nobody wanted to be that guy. Right. So there's the pressure of. Yeah, you'd think that that would get to people, but I guess I mean that's just what they did. They did it over and over so many times that. Listen. Like I said, they, these guys were so good and so efficient, you know. Yeah. And yeah, they, they just, yeah. and, you know, they, the excellence was their bottom line. Yeah. And uh, they knew how to get there. Yeah. I, I know you did some work with Elvis, and there's enough been written about that guy already. I don't need to grill you about Elvis or anything. But I but I am curious about working for a guy like that in, in the studio. Like, you know, he, he seems kind of larger than life, of course, and everybody knows all the, all the Elvis stories and stuff but um what was it actually like working in the studio with a guy like that was he present and involved in the production side of things yes he was great he was great see you know he was larger than life and you know back in that day he was so large that he couldn't like really just hang out in public as we all know yeah but the studio was his safe place with people he respected and appreciated and he was totally at ease, totally relaxed, and just, it was great experiences being in the studio with him. Especially, I did seven of those movies, right, right. and most of the music in those movies were not that great, you know. Uh -huh. And he would say to us, hey guys, I, I know these songs aren't very good, but let's do them the best we can. Oh, that's cool. And would he yeah. be would he be just singing right along with you guys, like your usual thing, where the singer is singing live and everything, or was Elvis different in that way? No, 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 no. They they weren't they weren't into that yet, into all that overdubbing. Not him. I mean, he was he was it. The vocal, what you hear is what you get. That era where you're working, you know, for Owen, for Chet, and for the other producers. Um, the other guy I want to bring up is Bob Johnson because he obviously had a huge impact on your career as well. But when did that 
shift and change? Like when, when did there, it seems to me there must be a time where that era just kind of came to an end, right? Well, no, that era continued, but what happened was this other thing started happening and what happened was it expanded. It, it created the, the business exploded in Nashville. It created a need for more studios and more musicians, but the A team guys were still doing their thing, you know. Yeah. That was still going on pretty much the way it did. All through the seventies and, and Yeah. Yeah. But uh this other thing happened and then uh like it was Katie Bar the Door. You know, and Nashville was always thought of as a country center. Right. And I don't know I, I don't know your age or but you know, in in the sixties when all this uh the the hate Ashbury movement and all that, you know, the hippie thing going on. Uh-huh. Rolling Stone was kind of music people's Bible, you know. Yeah. And Rolling Stone never was very kind to Nashville. <laughs> really. Uh, you know, I, I read an article that said, oh, Nashville, it's like assembly line music, you know. Right. All business and no art. Right. Uh, cookie cutter records. And uh, so no, none of those folk artists, we called them, you know, folk rock people, uh-huh. none of them would come to Nashville because... You know, we we didn't we had a bad reputation according to Rolling Stone. Interesting. And that's what that's what was so great about Bob Johnson and bringing Dylan because that that completely turned the whole thing around. Yeah, no kidding. So so the Bob Johnson thing, like was uh, like I know Bob was up in New York. How did you meet him for the first time? No, he he started coming from Texas. Oh, okay. And he's a songwriter. Yeah, he wrote for the. Uh, Elvis Presley Music Group, mm-hmm. and his goal was to get songs in Elvis movies. Oh. So he called me and asked me if I would lead sessions for him yeah. to do demos. So that's how we met, and that's how I started working for him. Okay. So we he did get about seven songs, I think, in Elvis movies uh, over the years wrote. while we were recording with him, you know? Wow. One day, then all the ones that didn't make the movies, he'd take them and pitch them other places. Okay. So he wasn't really a producer at this time? No. So here's the funny story. Like I said, say yes and figure it out. So <laughs> yeah. he's in New York pitching songs to this, the head A&R of Columbia Records. And the guy said, hey, these things are great. Where did you record these? He said, in Nashville. And he said, did you produce these? And he said, yes. <laughs> when, totally do you didn't. think you'd like to be a record producer? Yes. <laughs> he said, listen, we have an artist on the last session of her contract. If uh-huh. we don't get anything from her, we're going to drop her. Okay. Would you like to take a shot? And of course he said, yes. He said, who is it? He said, Patty Page. Okay. So he goes out. Bob was a smart guy. He went out with his, all of his contacts in L.A. Yeah. and found a movie that needed a theme. Yeah. So he recorded Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte on Patty Page. It was a huge hit. Revived her career. Wow. And now Columbia thinks they found their knight in shining armor, you know. So then they said, uh, how would you like to record Bob Dylan? Uh-huh. Of course he said he he was all over that, you know. Yeah. So then he moved to New York. Okay. And he told me, if you ever come to New York, I'll get you Broadway tickets. <laughs> Okay, that's cool. So one time I was going to New York, and I called, and I said, Hey, I'm in New York. How about my Broadway yeah, tickets? Yeah, bring them on, man. He said, 
He said, no problem. I got. He, he said, hey, can you come over to Columbia Studios this afternoon? I want you to meet Bob Dylan. <laughs> Had you oh, heard of okay. Dylan at that point? Well, yeah, I knew who he was. Okay. You know? I said, okay. So I went over and introduced me to Dylan, and Dylan said to me, hey, I'm getting ready to do this song. Why don't you grab that other guitar and play along? No way. And the song was Desolation Row. Yeah, man. And that is like a totally iconic guitar part. So you got to tell me about, like, was that just uh, off the cuff? Yeah. That was me trying to figure out what in the heck would Grady do. <laughs> That's funny that you mentioned that, because it is kind of a Grady Martin-ish concert, or, uh, approach. Yeah. Well, you know, I was so influenced by him. Uh, he's He was one of the greatest, you know. And... Uh, it's an eleven-minute song. You I know. know. Were, so were you? Were you like? Did you even know that it was an epic song, or nope. did you? You just thought. Listen, it was gonna... I, I was. I felt like I was completely overmatched. Yeah. And I was just struggling to keep up, because we did one take, heard it back, did a second take, and the bass player had another session to go to. That was it. No way. And I felt like, like I said, I was. I was hanging on for dear life, you know. That's crazy. Cause, so that record was mostly done with like Bloomfield and all those guys. So how did this song come about that it was like different from that, that crew? I have no idea. It was, wow, that's nuts. Uh, so then after, the, what I'm getting to with this is that later on I get a call from Bob Johnson. This is a month or so. Yeah. Hey, I'm bringing Dylan to Nashville. Get the guys. Right, right. Really? Yeah, he said. I, he he said I've been wanting him to come. He didn't want to. He said, but he's coming now. He said. By the way, I was using you for bait. <laughs> um, so what can you just going back for one sec to that Desolation Road track, which is like it's pretty mind-boggling to me because it is such a standout track on the record. It's so long. It's probably like you've probably never done anything like that. Um, uh, w- how was that? song done like were you again just in the room no headphones no yeah. isolation yeah it was there was just three of us uh-huh it was dylan and a bass player of me yeah any direction from from dylan or johnston to what to how you came up with that signature guitar part nope 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 <laughs> i love it i mean dylan was playing rhythm so i figured well i guess i ought to try to play some fills or something well you sure yeah. did he's playing rhythm and harmonica you yeah. know he had the rack and he plays plays at the same time and yeah and of course you know i've been i had been taught very very early on listen to the lyrics yeah yeah especially in that session that would have come in handy that's that's where you need to start yeah you know if if you disregard the lyrics you're missing the whole point of being there well it doesn't sound like you're scrambling or panicking it sounds very relaxed and and perfect for the song well i'm glad to hear that because i was scrambling and panicking (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay so so bob johnson somehow convinces dylan to come to nashville and um so uh there's that whole string of of nashville albums that that dylan does um four albums here yeah. yeah so blonde on blonde is the one that happens first right yeah and which is probably his greatest you know, his most successful album ever. Yeah. And that was the record that opened the doors to Nashville. Okay. Um, can you tell me some things about that session that aren't painfully obvious to people? <laughs> well, uh, two things. So we're, we're call, uh, it was 
the same crew that had played on Bob Johnson's demos. Okay. Plus Al Cooper. Right. And Robbie Robertson. Yeah. Okay. I'm actually reading Robbie's book right now, and he talks a lot yeah. about that session. So. Okay. Yeah, um, so, so we're called uh, on a Monday. Yeah. At two o'clock, we come in. Bob Johnson said, "Dylan's plane isn't late. You guys just hang loose." Okay. So we hang around. He finally shows up at six. Okay. And so then Bob Johnson comes in and said, "Hey." He said he hadn't finished the first song yet. You guys just hang loose. Go take a dinner break or whatever. This is so foreign to you, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so un... Nobody in Nashville worked like that. You know, nobody had budgets, you know, to do that. And so was the crew just kind of like rolling their eyes, like, who the hell is this? What's going on? Or... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so so here's the kicker. 4 a.m. the next morning, we start. Recording Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, oh my a fourteen-minute ballad. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you're playing guitar on that. Playing a rhythm guitar, yeah. Right, and like what? That must have been nuts. Like, did you get a chance to rehearse it? Did you know that it was going to be? Well, we ran it. We ran it down once, you know. Yeah. I mean, when it's fourteen minutes long, by the time you get through it once, you pretty much know it. And so he literally written that song in the studio that day sat down and I think I think he finished it I don't think I don't think it started it from scratch I think he just finished it that day okay but then the rest of the the rest of them went much better than that because <laughs> the, all the rest of them were already written so the next day oh, okay. it, it it went better you guys just sat there till four in the morning yep <laughs> we played ping pong we told jokes <laughs> uh we drank a lot of coffee yeah, uh, we took a break, went out to a restaurant to drink more coffee, you know, because you're thinking, well, just any minute now they're going to be ready. Yeah, and of course, you know, after midnight we're 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 making time and a half then too. So you're thrilled. That makes it a little easier to handle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember much about him personally? Was he interacting with you guys? Was nope. he just really never so said just... a word? Really? Nope. He'd sing his song and. I was session leader, so you know it's my job. I'm the I'm the link between him, the band, yeah. and the producer. And was he'd it un- run a song down? Yeah, I'd get an idea. You know, Bob, what do you think if we did this or did that? I don't know, man. What do you think? Really? That's all he ever said to me. So finally, I went into Bob Johnson and I said, "Hey, I'm asking his opinion. He's not giving me one. I'm going to quit asking." Okay. And he said, "He said." Okay, that's fine with me. I said, maybe if we play something he doesn't like, he'll say something. Yeah. So that was the way the that and the next two albums went. Was it um, was it kind of uncomfortable, or was it just like, that's the way he is, it's cool? Well, finally you say, okay, you know, I don't know whether he's just trying to be coy or whether he is in such a zone with his songs or whether he doesn't care, I don't know what it was. Finally, you know, at first it was a, for me it was a little disgusting because uh, I'm so used to the Nashville people, you know, yeah, who are so nice and mm-hmm. you know so appreciative, right? And it was like, you know, and I realized that deep down inside he probably didn't really want to be in Nashville, right? You know, and now after Bon and Bon becomes a giant record and he comes back to do John Wesley Harding, I expected maybe a little attitude change, uh huh, but there wasn't. Really, just same same guy, same like non-communicative. 
vibe. The best description I heard of Dylan was the music director from the Johnny Cash TV show. Yeah. He said, Bob Dylan doesn't know the answer to hello. <laughs> that is very strange. Like, it's very <clears throat> odd that he was able to create such great music and such great recordings if people aren't really, like, on, on like, behind you, you know? Like, it seems like you need people, like, really rooting for the session too but in this case it's almost like that wasn't happening yeah but you got you you got amazing professional musicians that can who get know what they're that. doing following their instinct you know right right do you yeah. think maybe he That's... was a little intimidated by that perhaps uh-huh perhaps yeah um so speaking of intimidated i'm as i mentioned i'm reading the robbie robertson book right now and he talks about coming in and showing up to nashville and you guys are all there and he's totally intimidated by that and doesn't really feel comfortable playing but then he does and yeah it didn't take long <laughs> okay and and so what do you remember about like that must have been a little odd for him he's a rock and roller he doesn't really he's yeah, not a session experience we were robbie and that whole crew they were the hawks and they were backing dylan up at that point um, yeah. but they hadn't actually made their mark on their own. So he must've been a bit of a stranger and, and a real fish out of water. Um, but do you remember him fitting in, in a, in a good way? Like he was probably playing louder than you guys were maybe, or, or anything uh, like that. I, I don't remember much about that. Okay. I just remember he was a good old country boy and we all liked him a lot. Nice. <laughs> well, he, you know, it, it seems like from the book that he, after he played, he felt like you guys really embraced him and he appreciated that. So, you know, obviously you guys were open to his outsider Canadian vibe, which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> so John Wesley Harding came around. You'd said he's kind of the same guy. Uh, but And you played bass on that record, right? Right. And that was uh, really scaled down, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's Pretty much me and him and me and Dylan and the drummer. And so how did you get the bass call for that? Like, why would it not have gone to, well, like, Bob Moore or something? I, I had played bass on some of Johnson's demos. Okay. So he knew I played bass. He just wanted you around. Yeah. He wanted me to lead it. That's it. Okay. And was there discussion about keeping that record on, like, a way more sparse production? Well, maybe Dylan and Johnson had talked about it ahead of time. That's why there weren't so many people there. Mm-hmm. And they probably just made that decision ahead. Uh, and you also played on Self-Portrait, I think, too, right? Yep. And uh, Nashville Skyline. Oh, and Nashville Skyline, of course. Right. And, uh, and you know, that was the first session work for, for Charlie Daniels. Really? Yep. And he was playing guitar? Him and Bob Johnson were, were old friends, you know? They're old buddies. Okay. And Charlie Daniels was playing guitar on that, right? Yep. And you're playing... What do you play on Nashville Skyline? Bass. You play bass. Okay. And Norman yep. Blake was playing some dobro. Yeah, Norman played some, and I don't remember who else, uh, but yeah. Pete Drake um, played Steel. Right, of course, yeah. So at that time, like, Dylan seems to have kind of embraced the Nashville thing a bit more or whatever. Like, was, was that a different session at all, or was it just kind of more of the same? More of the same. Really? <laughs> yep. That's like a whole, okay, so we we talked about there. there's like this whole other <clears throat> scene evolving in Nashville, and but obviously at that point... Rolling Stone must have changed their tune. Like, were people coming to Nashville all of a sudden? Did that just smash the doors open as far as musically what it was did. going on? It did. It, 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 it was, listen, just floodgates, you know. <laughs> Here they come, the birds, Leonard Cohen, uh, Gino Vanilli, uh, Buffy St. Marie, uh, Joan Baez, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, Dan Fogelberg. Right. I mean, it, it just, it's just like the wave, you know. 
And so were you playing on tons and tons of, of rock stuff then at yep. that point? I sure was, yeah. Uh-huh. And were the sessions generally follow the Nashville um, protocol of just doing one or two takes and moving on and doing three-hour sessions, or did things really change with it, that era? It depended, it depended on the artists, you know. Uh-huh. A lot of these artists, that, that whole idea of one take was... <laughs> It wasn't in their, wasn't on their radar, you know. Yeah, yeah. Although sometimes we thought our one take was better than what we ended up with, you know. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you could tell me a bit about Area Code Six One Five. It had uh, all the legendary players in it that that I know you were playing with all the time, and I'm just wondering how it started. I, I assume it was kind of had something to do with you know being with those guys all the time and and doing sessions, but not really having, having a chance to stretch out and play. But maybe you could tell me a bit about um, how it formed and what you guys were up to. Well, it was an experiment, actually. Uh, and it started with, uh, with Wayne Moss, Kenny Buttry, Norbert Putnam, David Briggs, and Matt Gaydon. Mm-hmm. Just the five of them decided they'd go in and try to record something. Yeah. Well, they went to the studio a couple times, and they weren't doing anything different or new, and... So they said, well, maybe we need some other people. So then they called in me and Weldon Myrick, Bobby Thompson, and Buddy Spiker. <laughs> not, not, a, not a bad little lineup. <laughs> right. We went to the studio a couple times, and, you know, we, first we all tried to play R&B, and that didn't work. Uh-huh. Then we all tried to play country, and that certainly wasn't nothing new. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we all played country, you know, that's what we do, but it was nothing new. Yeah. So we said, you know what? Let's try this one more time, and if nothing comes of it, let's forget it. Because uh-huh. we were all pretty busy right then doing session Yeah, work. man. It's crazy. And then the last day, Buddy and Bobby Thompson come in with this Hey Jude idea. Uh-huh. That was it. When, when, they did, when they played Hey Jude for us, all the wheels started turning, and we figured, okay, let's just do all these songs, you know, the country guys are not going to try to play R&B. The R&B guys are not going to try to play country. Let's just each do our own thing and make it blend together. And that, that's that's where it started. This producer that we worked with a lot named Elliot Mazur, yeah. we, we worked with him, you know, with several different artists. And uh, Kenny Buttry told him about this, and he wanted to listen to it. And when he heard it, he said, man, I can get you guys a record deal. Uh-huh. So we went ahead, and uh, he got us a deal. Yeah. And we told the company, hey, you know, we're studio guys. This is just music. Uh, if you want us to tour, forget it. We're not going to do it. <laughs> but we'll make the record for you. Yeah. So they said, oh, no, we want you to make the record. So we made the first album, and uh, we did one gig. We played the Fillmore West. One gig? Yeah, well, four nights at the Fillmore West. Wow. Opening for Country Joe and the Fish. Really? Yeah. Did people know who you were, or were you totally no. like, mysterious to everybody? Mysterious, and, okay. and we looked out of place, you know. Right, right. You know, that was the hippie capital of America. Yeah. And, uh, so you didn't play gigs around Nashville at all? No. Ten inches above my head, there was this thin line of marijuana smoke hanging <laughs> over the whole room, you know. That must have added a little uh, element of surprise to the proceedings. Well, <laughs> we had a couple of guys in a band are pretty tall, and they were saying, hey, this place is great. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we we played those four gigs, and then uh, the highlight was Linda Ronstadt sit in with us. Oh, man. She sang 
I can't help it if I'm still in love with you and Silver Threads and Golden Needles, which later she recorded as single records. Yeah, yeah. We went back and they said, okay, well, let's, let's, let's do another album. So then we started on the second album. Yeah. And uh, we went on the Johnny Cash show. Yeah, that's the footage I've seen, I think, is the Johnny yeah. Cash show stuff. Okay. And then uh, the record company were like, they got really aggressive. Look, you guys have got the tour. And we said, no, we don't. We told you <laughs> going in, we weren't. So they said, well, if you're not going to tour, you could, we're going to have to drop you. And we said, okay, go ahead, drop yeah. us. Yeah, you guys weren't exactly hurting for work or anything. So it was no. like, no. Uh, another, another session that comes to mind is the Boxer, um, which I think you did that in New York, right? Um, no, no oh, we, did the, we did the harmonica and the guitar in Nashville. Okay, so that was an overdub. Fred Carter played the guitar, uh-huh. and I played the bass harmonica. Yeah, it's incredible. It totally dr- makes that tune. Um, I'd love to take credit for it, but the whole idea was Paul Simon's. Really? He actually dictated every note to me. Really? Yes. And he had this idea of a bass harmonica in his head? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, his secretary called, Paul wants to know if you own a bass harmonica. I said, well, yeah, I do. And he said, okay. And so what, like you got on the phone with him and he said, this is what I want you to play? No, at the session. He oh, he was there? Work. Yeah, he, oh yeah, Garfunkel was there too. And was that Bob Johnston? Yep. So you're in there overdubbing and he's telling you like exactly what to play. Guy's a genius. Yeah, he sure is. Well, it's a, I mean, that's a, that's a killer track. Um, so in the middle of all this um, recording that you were doing, like, I'm just curious, like in the 70s, what your actual schedule was like like were you in the studio seven days a week or was it not that crazy for you and then no we we didn't work on sundays okay but so six days a week you were you were working pretty hard pretty much yeah Yeah, uh you know and and like all the folk rock people were coming now yeah but but we still had all of our country accounts you know right right so it was uh in the middle of that you made a whole bunch of great solo records too i'm just wondering like how how did you find the time and energy to do that in the middle of doing so many sessions? Did you have to put time aside to get that stuff together, or did you just kind of wing it in the studio? No, I just, I, I'm a, listen, uh, that's one one thing I do is that uh, when I go do a session for myself, mm-hmm. it is totally organized. And, okay. You know, I, I, they, they wanted us to do an album, and, uh, you know, it was nothing to it, really. Mm-hmm. Took four, uh, three sessions to do an album, and so when you say that, when you say three sessions, you mean like three days or like no nine hours, nine hours, okay, <laughs> to do an album because yeah. I you know my early albums were like all covers, right, right, yeah, instrumental covers of big hit songs. That was a piece of cake for everyone, you know. Everyone yeah. already knew the songs, and they're just saying, okay, you know, well, yeah, we know the song. What's your arrangement of it? And I said, okay, here it is. Was it any different being the artist all of a sudden as opposed to just being the side guy that you were more used to being? Not really. Uh, you know, I, I I approached it as if I were a singer. Yeah, yeah. And I had them play behind me as if I were a singer. Okay. And I think that was maybe a kind of a key to what made those albums popular because, you know, there wasn't much going on instrumentally at that time. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, me and Boots Randolph and Floyd Kramer and Chet Atkins was about it. Yeah. And you know what You know what? another album, probably from a little bit earlier, but that you played on that, that I, I find totally fascinating is that um, Gary Burton record, speaking of instrumentals from Nashville. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> the, uh, that, guy, 
That guy's an alien. Yeah, that's an incredible record. It's so crazy. I saw him, I saw him play with six mallets. Really? What about your recent solo records? Like you have this new record, or, or I, I don't know if you have a newer one, but A Shot in the Harp is the... Is the, Shot uh, in the Harp is the latest thing. It's a six-song EP with yeah. just all music of Henry Mancini. Yeah, and so how'd you, how'd you record that? Is, do you still record that way, like super fast, or do you kind of take yep. your time more now? Yeah, I do everything that way, you know. I know what I want. I know what I know how to get it. I know the musicians, you know, and the musicians in Nashville are so good. Yeah, they're so versatile, and you know this uh, this 40th album plus the Mancini on those 41 projects, yeah, including m- musicians, singers, and engineers. I have used 459 <laughs> people. <laughs> you actually counted. <laughs> Uh, no, I have a list. I, I have oh a complete list, and uh, and I have a long list of people I want to use in the future. Yeah. There's so many. There's so much talent in Nashville. It's scary, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just trying to tap. Now I have some favorite people, of course, you know. Uh-huh. But I'm, I'm just trying to tap this amazing uh, pool of talent we have. Well, man, I, re- I really appreciate uh, you taking the time, and uh, thanks so much for talking to me today. Okay, All gotta right, run. Man. All right, thank you. Later. See ya. Bye. Well, that's what this show is all about, folks, talking with people like that. It doesn't The opportunity doesn't come up all that often, but when it does, it, it sure is thrilling for me, and I hope enjoyable for you to listen to. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being around, and we will reconnect next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.